Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 11. Last week, I continued the journey working through the people, places, and things found in Deuteronomy. In that installment, covering mostly places in Chapters 2 and 3, if you missed the episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm doing much of the same, beginning in Chapter 4 and making it through the next few chapters of the book. And with that, let's get started. The first place I'm covering this week is a place known as Bezer, and the mention in Deuteronomy 4 is the first in the Bible. Here, we're told it was a city of refuge, in the wilderness on the tableland belonging to the Reubenites. Since it was a city of refuge, and despite being in the territory allotted to the Reubenites, it would be held by the tribe of Levi, therefore a Levitical city. The city merited a few other mentions, but nearly all were of a geographic sort, and most note it was located on the steppe and was used for pasture land. As for its actual location, the text gives some clues. It was on the desert plateau east of the Jordan River, so therefore also east of Hebron. Other than that, no one really knows its actual location, though a few places have been proposed, but nothing with any solid evidence. As for being a city of refuge, I've covered that concept numerous times, but as a quick refresher, a person accused of murder could flee there to get a trial. If they were judged as not guilty of murder, but guilty of the lesser offense of accidental manslaughter, the perp could live in the city until the high priest died. After his death, they could return to their hometown and be free from any sort of vengeance. There was also another bezer in the Old Testament, mentioned in 1 Chronicles 7, as the name of a descendant of Asher, one of Jacob's sons. It's likely, though not explicitly mentioned, that the city took the name from this man. And that's it for bezer. In the same verse as Bezer is the place Ramoth Gilead. In the ancient Hebrew, this place name translates to the heights of Gilead. It too was a city of refuge, and this is the first mention in the biblical text. Unlike Bezer, Ramoth Gilead was pretty well covered in the text of the Old Testament. This city was located in the territory allotted to the tribe of Gad, which placed it east of the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, territory the wandering Israelites would take when Moses was still alive, so prior to crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land. Later in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 4, we're told that Ramoth Gilead was the headquarters of Ben Gerber, one of King Solomon's regional governors. In addition to this city, he was accountable for the settlements of Jair, the son of Manasseh, villages that were located in Gilead, along with the region of Argob in Bashan, and its 60 large walled cities. What this meant was that Ben Gerber supplied provisions for the king and the royal household, one-twelfth of what the royal household required annually, so one month's worth. Do note that one of the other regional governors was Ben-Hur, but not the subject of the 1959 movie starring Charlton Heston. That Ben-Hur was a fictional Judean who lived in 26 AD, nearly a thousand years later. 
Back in Ramoth Gilead, it appears to have been lost at some point to Aram Damascus. Later, King Ahab, the king of Israel, proposed to go to battle to win it back in 1 Kings 22. King Ahab, prior to engaging the Assyrians in a fight, consulted with prophets, according to the text, some 400 of them. They advised that God would deliver the Assyrians to him. He would ally with King Jehoshaphat of Judah, and the two, of course with their armies, would begin preparations for the fight for Ramoth and Gilead. Though, before setting out, Jehoshaphat had an idea. At this point, I'll let the NIV do the talking, though with a bit of my own paraphrasing, just to be efficient with time. Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Ahab answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. His name is Micaiah. Jehoshaphat then chastised Ahab for saying what he did. Ahab then told his officials to immediately retrieve Micaiah. At this point, the 400 prophets, who had already spoken, along with a few others in the court, tried to again to convince the two kings to attack the Assyrians. Micaiah then arrives and says, Attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Ahab is taken aback, as Micaiah has never foretold anything good for the king, so Ahab asks again, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Micaiah replies, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep, without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. Ahab then had his, I told you so moment, with Jehoshaphat saying, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continues, probably turning to face the other so-called prophets. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. What were the kings to do? Go and fight for Ramoth Gilead and listen to the 400 or listen to the one? Of course, they were itching for a battle, so they went. During the battle, Ahab was struck by an arrow. He was propped up in his chariot facing the enemy, but by evening he had bled out, dying, with the Assyrians winning the battle and presumably keeping Ramoth Gilead. But the Israelites weren't done fighting there. In 2 Kings 8, when Hazael, king of the Arameans, violently revolted in Damascus, and, as Elisha had predicted, 
Jehoram made an alliance with his nephew, Ahaziah, king of Judah. The two kings set forth to take Ramoth-Gilead from Aram-Damascus. Do note that Jehoram was the son of the previously slain king Ahab. His mother was Jezebel. Like father, like son. And Jehoram would lose the fight and end up getting wounded, though he didn't die. Instead, he retreated to Jezreel to recover. It is likely that his defeat at Ramoth-Gilead was a disaster. As a result, while Jehoram was recuperating at Jezreel, his general Jehu incited a revolt. Jehu executed Jehoram by shooting him in the back with an arrow and had his body thrown into the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite, as punishment for his parents' sin in illegally stealing Naboth's land. Like I said, like father, like son. With the death of Jehoram and his other family members, the Ahab dynasty came to an end. Jehu claimed the throne of Israel as his own. In the next chapter, the prophet Elisha told an unnamed prophet to anoint Jehoram's commander Jehu as the king of Israel. At the time, Jehu was in Ramoth-Gilead. There are a few other mentions of the city in the Old Testament, but they either refer to the past events in the city, like the ones I just covered, or are of a purely geographic landmark sort. There is nothing explicit in the New Testament, but there is something interesting. Hugh Schoenfeld, a 20th century British Bible scholar, proposed that Armageddon, mentioned in Revelation 16, was the Aramaic name for Ramoth-Gilead. Remember that the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and his theory was that in the transition from the Hebrew of the Old Testament to Aramaic to Greek, the name was changed. Do note, there isn't much support for his theory, but it is interesting, and gets me to where this city may have actually been located. While there is no definite place for the city, it's commonly associated with another lost city, Rimon. And given that the locations of both are unknown, that really isn't helpful. It is thought that it was a handful of miles outside of Jurish, in the northern reaches of the modern country of Jordan. There are a few other possible locations, but still nothing definite. Given all of the historic mentions in the first several books of the Old Testament, there is no doubt that the city did exist. It's just most likely that the uncovered outside artifacts have assigned a different name to it. Moving along. Next up is Golan, a name that may sound familiar. It was first mentioned in Deuteronomy 4 as a town in Bashan. In our modern context, the name is used more for a small region known as the Golan Heights. But the region so, with the addition of the word heights, wouldn't be called this until the 19th century, and that's A.D. Either way, it's still at the same place on the map. It was in territory allotted to Manasseh, and also a city of refuge. Therefore, just like the other cities of refuge, the city itself would go to the tribe of Levi. And, unlike the other places I've covered thus far in the episode, there's only a handful of mentions in the text, but the outside record is full of its history. 
finally something to explore. Overall, the region has historically been an agricultural center, with a few towns and those that were in it weren't sizable. The region is currently defined as the area between the Yormuk River in the south, Mount Hermon in the north, the Sea of Galilee in the west, and the Wadi Rakhad in the east. This makes it just under 700 square miles, about 1,800 square kilometers, which is roughly half the size of the smallest U.S. state, Rhode Island. The soil is slightly similar to the volcanic Argob I covered two episodes ago, though the geology of the area budding against Mount Hermon tends to be more of a sedimentary origin. Throughout the region, there are many natural springs, Think back to the hydrology I covered of Mount Hermon, that's so tall that it snows, and the meltwater gets absorbed into the soil. This is where some of that water eventually ends up. Not to forget that the Golan Heights themselves tend to get an inordinate amount of rain, especially compared to the rest of the region around it, and it's these springs and the occasional wadi that allows the agriculture in the region. There's also a lake in the area, Berakat Ram, that's formed in the crater of one of these volcanoes and fed by the same water. And most of the water that flows into the part of the Jordan River north of the Sea of Galilee comes from precipitation that falls first on Mount Hermon or the Golan Heights. This alone has made the region valuable for thousands of years, since the dawn of agriculture and even through today. The earliest archaeological evidence of people living in the region dates back to well before 10,000 BC. This includes a rock figurine dubbed the Venus of Barakat Ram, though these finds tend to be rather sporadic and subject to much interpretation. In the 3rd millennium BC, the Amorite controlled Golan. Then, in the 14th century BC, and as written about in the Armana letters, it was part of the territories controlled by Labaya, the Canaanite king of Shechem. Of course, it was controlled by King Og of Bashan prior to the Israelites. At the same time, parts of the region were controlled by the kingdom of Gushur. The city was on the fringe of territory controlled by the Israelites. And owing to this, control would constantly shift to outside empires very early on between the Israelites and the nearby Arameans, then the Assyrians, next were the Persians. As the Jewish people returned from the Babylonian captivity, they would begin to resettle in the region. It would come under the control of Alexander the Great in 332 BC, as a result of the Battle of Issus. With Alexander's death, it would go to the rule of the Macedonian general Seleucus, and remained part of the Seleucid Empire for most of the next couple of centuries. It was during this period that the name Golan no longer referred to just the city, but also the region. After the Seleucid Greeks, there were various Arab tribes, then the Hasmoneans, and next the Nabataeans. And all of this was before 63 BC, when, along with much of the neighboring territory, it was conquered by the Roman general Pompey. I'm not going to dive into the history of those kingdoms just yet, at least those I haven't covered, and save that for when I get to that point in the broader historical narrative. In 23 BC, it would come under the control of Herod the Great. 
He, followed by his heirs, would control the region until the death of Herod Agrippa II, the great Herod's great-grandson, who would die sometime between 92 and 100 AD, meaning, of course, that Golan, the city, and the region was controlled by the Romans when Jesus was walking, talking, teaching, and healing in the area. The same goes for all of the other New Testament characters. In the middle of the Roman control was the first Jewish-Roman war, fought between 66 and 73 AD. Golan only managed to rebel against the Romans for a year, and was among the first territories to fall, doing so in 67. Josephus recorded that the residents committed mass suicide, preferring it to crucifixion and slavery. Even after Agrippa II's death, owing to its location, it remained an economically prosperous region, though it continued to be controlled by the Romans, followed by the Byzantines. Over this period, the majority pagan communities were slowly replaced with Christians, with a few Jewish families remaining in the area. Around the year 250, the Ghassanids, who were Arab Christians from Yemen, established a kingdom that encompassed southern Syria and the Transjordan, territory that included Golan. But they were merely a client state to the Byzantines. Both the Christian and Jewish settlements would come to an end with the conquering of the region by Muslim forces in the 7th century. Though the might of the Islamists waxed and waned, and when it was on the decline, so did the cities, with only the agriculturally-based residents remaining in the area. And those that did remain were constantly harassed by the nomadic Bedouins. Overall, the Muslims would remain at least nominally in control for the next ten centuries, except for a short period when the European Crusaders were in town, and that was twice in the 12th century, also noteworthy was that during the 13th century, the Mongols controlled Golan, but just for a brief stint. In the 16th century, the Ottomans would take over and control it until they lost out to the British and French in World War I. Towards the end of the span, in 1868, the area was reported as being almost entirely desolate, though at the end of the 19th century, refugees from the Caucasus escaping the Russo-Turkish War, fled to Golan, followed shortly by European Jews who began purchasing land in the area, attempting to form settlements. After World War I, Golan became part of the French Mandate. It would remain under French control until 1946, when it was made part of the recently independent Syrian Republic. Since the formation of the modern nation of Israel, control over the region has shifted back and forth between Israel and Syria, mostly depending on who won the last battle. The first was in the 1967 Six-Day War. Currently, at least as of the date this is being recorded, so in 2020, the Golan Heights are controlled in large part by Israel. This shouldn't be much of a surprise as even today, Syria remains embroiled in a civil war, and that's it for Golan, and the last place I'll cover from Deuteronomy 4. Chapter 5 begins with the restating of the Ten Commandments, so nothing new to add here. Chapter 6 is very similar, also not introducing any new people, places, or things. 
Chapter 7 begins with a list of several groups that occupied Canaan, namely the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Moses tells the people that these groups are mightier than them, therefore, they will have to rely on God to defeat these kingdoms, all of which are currently occupying the Promised Land. I've covered the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, and Jebusites in previous episodes, and now is just as good of a place as any to spend time on the other three. First up among the people mentioned in Chapter 7 are the Girgashites. They were also mentioned in Genesis 15, a place where God told Abraham which groups were presently occupying the land his descendants would eventually conquer. They do get a few other mentions in the text of the Old Testament, but all of these are simply referencing that they, depending on when the text was written, were either currently or formerly occupied parts of Canaan. Never are we told what part of the land they lived in, but only that they were driven out. The text is even silent on how that happened. Researchers believe that the Girgashites were likely the same people that others called the Karakasha. These people were allies of the Hittites, at least when they fought the Egyptians, who were at the same time ruled by Ramses II. So, between about 1279 and 1213 BC, which was in the same period as when it's believed the Exodus occurred. Making the timeline make sense. If the Girgashites were the same as the Karakasha, then they were probably people originally from Anatolia who migrated to Canaan when the Hittite Empire collapsed at the end of the 13th century BC. Though there are a few researchers who think they were more closely associated with the Hurrians, Either way, they were a minor group that was only marginally mentioned. The next group are the Perizzites. Like the Girgashites, they too were mentioned in Genesis, a few chapters earlier, this time along with the Canaanites as having lived in the land at the same time as Abraham and Lot. In ancient Hebrew, the name may simply mean a person living in a rural area, so, it may not be a specific kingdom or ethnic group. It could also refer to people who lived in towns. But in this case, those towns were not protected by walls. This potential generic mention of the name clouds all of the references to the people throughout the Old Testament, a place where they are mentioned as late as the writings of Ezra, thought to have been recorded in the 5th century BC. Unlike the Girgashites, the text does say where they lived with two separate mentions in Joshua denoting they were in the hill country assigned to Judah and Ephraim. This would place them west of the Jordan and Dead Sea, an area that included the towns of Shiloh, Bethlehem, Hebron, and Jerusalem. Though, if they were simply country folk, they likely wouldn't have been found inside the boundaries of those cities but likely in the area surrounding it. 1 Kings 9 does record that King Solomon did enslave them, where we're told, all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were still left in the land, whom the Israelites were unable to destroy completely, 
These Solomon conscripted for slave labor. They managed to survive even through this enslavement, potentially being freed as late as the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. Ezra lamented that the Perizzites, among others, still intermingled with the Israelites, and this intermingling is commonly interpreted as meaning the variously listed groups all married Israelites. Unfortunately, there is nothing in the outside record that mentions the people, which does strengthen the belief that it was simply a catch-all word for rural dwellers. And that's it for the Perizzites, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll kick off with the history of the Hivites. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.